Section 4 of An American Tragedy, Volume 1, by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Book 1, Chapter 4. The effect of this particular conclusion was to cause Clyde to think even harder about himself, and the principal result of his thinking was that he must do something for himself, and soon. Up to this time the best he had been able to do was to work at such odd jobs as befall all boys between their twelfth and fifteenth years, assisting a man who had a paper route during the summer months of one year, working in the basement of a five-and-ten-cent store all one summer long, and on Saturdays, for a period during the winter, opening boxes and unpacking goods, for which he received the munificent sum of five dollars a week, a sum which, at the time, seemed almost a fortune. He felt himself rich, and, in the face of the opposition of his parents, who were opposed to the theatre and motion pictures also, as being not only worldly but sinful, he could occasionally go to one or another of those, in the gallery, a form of diversion which he had to conceal from his parents, yet that did not deter him. He felt that he had a right to go with his own money, also to take his younger brother Frank, who was glad enough to go with him and say nothing. Later in the same year, wishing to get out of school, because he already felt himself very much belated in the race, he secured a place as an assistant to a soda-water clerk in one of the cheaper drug stores of the city, which adjoined a theater and enjoyed not a little patronage of this sort. A sign, boy wanted, since it was directly on his way to school, first interested him. Later, in conversation with the young man whose assistant he was to be, and from whom he was to learn the trade, assuming that he was sufficiently willing and facile, he gathered that if he mastered this art, he might make as much as fifteen and even eighteen dollars a week. It was rumored that Strouds at the corner of 14th and Baltimore Streets paid that much to two of their clerks. The particular store to which he was applying paid only twelve, the standard salary of most places. But to acquire this art, as he was now informed, required time and the friendly help of an expert. If he wished to come here and work for five to begin with, well, six then, since his face fell, he might soon expect to know a great deal about the art of mixing sweet drinks, and decorating a large variety of ice creams with liquid sweets, thus turning them into sundaes. For the time being, apprenticeship meant washing and polishing all the machinery and implements of this particular counter, to say nothing of opening and sweeping out the store at so early an hour as 7.30, dusting, and delivering such orders as the owner of this drug store chose to send out by him. At such idle moments as his immediate supervisor, a Mr. Sieberling, twenty, dashing, self-confident, talkative, was too busy to fill all the orders, he might be called upon to mix such minor drinks, lemonades, coca-colas, and the like, as the trade demanded. Yet this interesting position, after due consultation with his mother, he decided to take. For one thing, it would provide him, as he suspected, with all the free ice cream sodas he desired, an advantage not to be disregarded. In the next place, as he saw it at the time, it was an open door to a trade, something which he lacked. Further, and not at all disadvantageously as he saw it, this store required his presence at night as late as twelve o'clock, with certain hours off during the day to compensate for this, and this took him out of his home at night, out of the ten o'clock boy class at last. They could not ask him to attend any meeting save on Sunday, and not even then, since he was supposed to work Sunday afternoons and evenings. Next, the clerk who manipulated this particular soda fountain quite regularly received passes from the manager of the theater next door, and into the lobby of which one door to the drug store gave, a most fascinating connection to Clyde. 
It seemed so interesting to be working for a drugstore thus intimately connected with the theater. And best of all, as Clyde now found to his pleasure, and yet despair at times, the place was visited, just before and after the show on matinee days, by bevies of girls, single and en suite, who sat at the counter and giggled and chattered and gave their hair and their complexions last perfecting touches before the mirror. And Clyde, callow and inexperienced in the ways of the world, and those of the opposite sex, was never weary of observing the beauty, the daring, the self-sufficiency, and the sweetness of these, as he saw them. For the first time in his life, while he busied himself with washing glasses, filling the ice cream and syrup containers, arranging the lemons and oranges in the trays, he had an almost uninterrupted opportunity of studying these girls at close range. The wonder of them. For the most part, they were so well-dressed and smart-looking, the rings, pins, furs, delightful hats, pretty shoes they wore, and so often he heard them discussing such interesting things. Parties, dances, dinners, the shows they had seen, the places in or near Kansas City to which they were soon going, the difference between the styles of this year and last, the fascination of certain actors and actresses, principally actors, who were now playing or soon coming to the city. And to this day, in his own home, he had heard nothing of all this. And very often one or another of these young beauties was accompanied by some male, in evening suit, dress shirt, high hat, bow tie, white kid gloves, and patent leather shoes, a costume which at that time Clyde felt to be the last word in all true distinction, beauty, gallantry, and bliss. To be able to wear such a suit with ease and air, to be able to talk to a girl after that manner, and with the sang-froid of some of these gallants, what a true measure of achievement! No good-looking girl, as it then appeared to him, would have anything to do with him if he did not possess this standard of equipment. It was plainly necessary, the thing, and once he did attain it, was able to wear such clothes as these, well, then was he not well set upon the path that leads to all the blisses? All the joys of life would then most certainly be spread before him. The friendly smiles, the secret hand-clasps, maybe, an arm about the waist of someone or another, a kiss, a promise of marriage, and then, and then, and all this as a revealing flash, after all the years of walking through the streets with his father and mother to public prayer meeting, the sitting in a chapel and listening to queer and nondescript individuals, depressing and disconcerting people, telling how Christ had saved them and what God had done for them, you bet he would get out of that now. He would work and save his money and be somebody. Decidedly, this simple and yet idyllic compound of the commonplace had all the luster and wonder of a spiritual transfiguration, the true mirage of the lost and thirsting and seeking victim of the desert. However, the trouble with this particular position, as time speedily proved, was that much as it might teach him of mixing drinks and how to eventually earn twelve dollars a week, it was no immediate solvent for the yearnings and ambitions that were already gnawing at his vitals. For Albert Sieberling, his immediate superior, was determined to keep as much of his knowledge as well as the most pleasant parts of the tasks, to himself. And further, he was quite at one with the druggist for whom they worked, in thinking that Clyde, in addition to assisting him about the fountain, should run such errands as the druggist desired, which kept Clyde industriously employed for nearly all the hours he was on duty. Consequently, there was no immediate result to all this. Clyde could see no way to dressing better than he did. Worse, he was haunted by the fact that he had very little money, and very few contacts and connections, so few that outside his own home he was lonely, and not so very much less than lonely there. 
the flight of esta had thrown a chill over the religious work there and because as yet she had not returned the family as he now heard was thinking of breaking up here and moving for want of a better idea to denver colorado but clyde by now was convinced that he did not wish to accompany them what was the good of it he asked himself there would be just another mission there the same as this one he had always lived at home in the rooms at the rear of the mission in bickle street but he hated it and since his eleventh year during all of which time his family had been residing in kansas city he had been ashamed to bring boyfriends to or near it for that reason he had always avoided boyfriends and had walked and played very much alone or with his brothers and sisters but now that he was sixteen and old enough to make his own way he ought to be getting out of this and yet he was earning almost nothing not enough to live on if he were alone and he had not as yet developed sufficient skill or courage to get anything better nevertheless when his parents began to talk of moving to denver and suggested that he might secure work out there never assuming for a moment that he would not want to go he began to throw out hints to the effect that it might be better if he did not he liked kansas city what was the use of changing he had a job now and he might get something better but his parents bethinking themselves of esta and the fate that had overtaken her were not a little dubious as to the outcome of such early adventuring on his part alone once they were away where would he live with whom what sort of influence would enter his life who would be at hand to aid and counsel and guide him in the straight and narrow path as they had done it was something to think about but spurred by this imminence of denver which now daily seemed to be drawing nearer and the fact that not long after this mr sieberling owing to his too obvious gallantries in connection with the fair sex lost his place in the drug store and clyde came by a new and bony and chill superior who did not seem to want him as an assistant he decided to quit not at once but rather to see on such errands as took him out of the store if he could not find something else incidentally in so doing looking here and there he one day thought he would speak to the manager of the fountain which was connected with the leading drug store in the principal hotel of the city the latter a great twelve-story affair which represented as he saw it the quintessence of luxury and ease its windows were always so heavily curtained the main entrance he had never ventured to look beyond that was a splendiferous combination of glass and iron awning coupled with a marble corridor lined with palms often he had passed here wondering with boyish curiosity what the nature of the life of such a place might be before its doors so many taxis and automobiles were always in waiting Today, being driven by the necessity of doing something for himself he entered the drug store which occupied the principal corner facing fourteenth street at baltimore and finding a girl cashier in a small glass cage near the door asked of her who was in charge of the soda fountain interested by his tentative and uncertain manner as well as his deep and rather appealing eyes she instinctively judging that he was looking for something to do observed why mr secor there the manager of the store she nodded in the direction of a short meticulously dressed man of about thirty-five who was arranging an especial display of toilet novelties on the top of a glass case clyde approached him and being still very dubious as to how one went about getting anything in life and finding him engrossed in what he was doing stood first on one foot and then on the other until at last sensing someone was hovering about for something the man turned well he queried you don't happen to need a soda fountain helper do you clyde cast at him a glance that said as plain as anything could if you have any such place i wish you would please give it to me i need it no 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 replied this individual 
who was blonde and vigorous and by nature a little irritable and contentious. He was about to turn away, but seeing a flicker of disappointment and depression pass over Clyde's face, he turned and added, "'Ever work in a place like this before?' "'No place as fine as this.' "'No, sir,' replied Clyde, rather fancifully moved by all that was about him. "'I'm working now down at Mr. Quinkle's store at 7th and Brooklyn, but it isn't anything like this one, and I'd like to get something better if I could.' "'Ah,' uh, went on his interviewer, rather pleased by the innocent tribute to the superiority of his store. "'Well, that's reasonable enough. But there isn't anything here right now that I could offer you. We don't make many charges. But if you'd like to be a bellboy, I can tell you where you might get a place.' They're looking for an extra boy in the hotel inside there right now. The captain of the boys was telling me he was in need of one. I should think that would be as good as helping about the soda fountain any day. Then, seeing Clyde's face suddenly brighten, he added, But you mustn't say that I sent you because I don't know you. Just ask for Mr. Squires inside there, under the stairs, and he can tell you all about it. At the mere mention of work in connection with so imposing an institution as the Green Davidson, and the possibility of his getting it, Clyde first stared, felt himself tremble the least bit with excitement, then, thanking his adviser for his kindness, went direct to a green marble doorway which opened from the rear of this drug store into the lobby of the hotel. Once through it, he beheld a lobby, the like of which, for all his years, but because of the timorous poverty that had restrained him from exploring such a world, was more arresting, quite, than anything he had seen before. It was also lavish. Under his feet was a checkered black-and-white marble floor above him a coppered and stained and gilded ceiling, and supporting this a veritable forest of black marble columns as highly polished as the floor, glassy smooth, and between the columns which ranged away toward three separate entrances, one right, one left, and one directly forward toward Dalrymple Avenue, were lamps, statuary, rugs, palms, chairs, divans, tete-a-tetes, a prodigal display. In short, it was compact, of all that gauche luxury of appointment, which, as someone once sarcastically remarked, was intended to supply exclusiveness to the masses. Indeed, for an essential hotel in a great and successful American commercial city, it was almost too luxurious. Its rooms and hall and lobbies and restaurants were entirely too richly furnished, without the saving grace of either simplicity or necessity. As Clyde stood, gazing about the lobby, he saw a large company of people, some women and children, but principally men, as he could see, either walking or standing about, and talking or idling in the chairs, side by side or alone, and in heavily draped and richly furnished alcoves where were writing tables, newspaper files, a telegraph office, a haberdasher's shop, and a florist's stand were other groups. There was a convention of dentists in the city, not a few of whom, with their wives and children, were gathered here, but to Clyde, who was not aware of this, nor of the methods and meanings of conventions, this was the ordinary, everyday appearance of the hotel. He gazed about in awe and amazement. Then, remembering the name of Squires, he began to look for him in his office under the stairs. To his right was a grand double-winged black-and-white staircase, which swung in two separate flights and with wide, generous curves from the main floor to the one above. And between these great flights was evidently the office of the hotel, for there were many clerks there. But behind the nearest flight, and close to the wall through which he had come, was a tall desk at which stood a young man of about his own age, in a maroon uniform, bright with many brass buttons. And on his head was a small round pillbox cap, which was cocked jauntily over one ear. He was busy making entries with a lead pencil in a book which lay open before him. 
various other boys about his own age, and uniformed as he was, were seated upon a long bench near him, or were to be seen darting here and there, sometimes returning to this one with a slip of paper or a key or note of some kind, and then seating themselves upon the bench to wait another call, apparently, which seemed to come swiftly enough. A telephone upon the small desk at which stood the uniformed youth was almost constantly buzzing, and after ascertaining what was wanted, this youth struck a small bell before him, or called front, to which the first boy on the bench responded. Once called, they went hurrying up one or the other stairs, or toward one of the several entrances or elevators, and almost invariably were to be seen escorting individuals, whose bags and suitcases and overcoats and golf sticks they carried. There were others who disappeared and returned, carrying drinks on trays or some package or other, which they were taking to the rooms above. Plainly, this was the work that he should be called upon to do, assuming that he would be so fortunate as to connect himself with such an institution as this. And it was also brisk and enlivening that he wished that he might be so fortunate as to secure a position here. But would he be? And where was Mr. Squires? He approached the youth at the small desk. "'Do you know where I will find Mr. Squires?' he asked. "'Here he comes now,' replied the youth, looking up and examining Clyde with keen gray eyes." Clyde gazed in the direction indicated, and saw approaching a brisk and dapper and decidedly sophisticated-looking person of perhaps twenty-nine or thirty years of age. He was so very slender, keen, hatchet-faced, and well-dressed, that Clyde was not only impressed but overawed at once, a very shrewd and cunning-looking person. His nose was so long and thin, his eyes so sharp, his lips thin and chin-pointed. "'Did you see that tall, gray-haired man with the scotch plaid shawl who went through here just now?' he paused to say to his assistant at the desk. The assistant nodded. "'Well, they tell me that's the Earl of Landriel. He just came in this morning with fourteen trunks and four servants. Can you beat it? He's somebody in Scotland. That isn't the name he travels under, though, I hear. He's registered as Mr. Blunt. Can you beat that English stuff? They certainly lay on the class, eh?' "'You said it,' replied his assistant deferentially. He turned for the first time, glimpsing Clyde, but paying no attention to him. His assistant came to Clyde's aid. "'That young fellow there is waiting to see you,' he explained. "'You want to see me?' queried the captain of the bellhops, turning to Clyde and observing his none-too-good clothes, at the same time making a comprehensive study of him. "'The gentleman in the drug store began Clyde, who did not quite like the looks of the man before him, but was determined to present himself as agreeably as possible, was saying— that is, he said that I might ask you if there was any chance here for me as a bellboy. I'm working now at Clinkle's Drugstore at 7th and Brooklyn as a helper, but I'd like to get out of that, and he said you might... That is, he thought you had a place open now. Clyde was so flustered and disturbed by the cool examining eyes of the man before him that he could scarcely get his breath properly and swallowed hard. For the first time in his life it occurred to him that if he wanted to get on, he ought to insinuate himself into the good graces of people do or say something that would make them like him. So now he contrived an eager, ingratiating smile, which he bestowed on Mr. Squires, and added, If you'd like to give me a chance, I'd try very hard, and I'd be very willing. The man before him merely looked at him coldly, but being the soul of craft and self-acquisitiveness in a petty way, and rather liking anybody who had the skill and the will to be diplomatic, he now put aside an impulse to shake his head negatively and observed, but you haven't had any training in this work. No, sir, but I could pick it up pretty quick if I tried hard. Well, let me see, observed the head of the bellhops, scratching his head dubiously. I haven't any time to talk to you now. Come around Monday afternoon. I'll see you then. 
He turned on his heel and walked away. Clyde, left alone in this fashion, and not knowing what Justin meant, stared, wondering. Was it really true that he had been invited to come back on Monday? Could it be possible that— He turned and hurried out, thrilling from head to toe. The idea! He had asked this man for a place in the very finest hotel in Kansas City, and he had asked him to come back and see him on Monday. Gee, what could that mean? Could it be possible that he would be admitted to such a grand world as this? And so speedily? Could it be? End of Book 1, Chapter 4